Welcome to WOMA's series on occupational and environmental medicine updates, where today we are speaking with Dr. Andrew Lux on COVID pulmonology, what we know now. My name is Dr. David Coretto, and I'm today's moderator. WOMA is the Western Regional Component of the American College of Occupational and Environmental Medicine. WOMA podcasts are a benefit for WOMA members to stay current on topics of interest to occupational environmental medicine physicians. The WOMA Education Committee members involved in the planning of this session have no relevant financial relationships to disclose. Dr. Lux reports no conflicts of interest. For practicing physicians, the coronavirus pandemic of 2020 has been an exercise in medical decision-making with incomplete or at times, contradictory information. A rapidly unfolding pandemic with a novel pathogen exhibiting great mortality and morbidity encouraged physicians to search for the best available information in service to their patients. But what if the best available information during periods of medical uncertainty does not give clear answers or evidence is lacking? What is a physician to do? Perhaps the answer is in the timeless wisdom from Of the Epidemics, by ancient Greek physician Hippocrates, who wrote, the physician must be able to tell the antecedents, know the present and foretell the future, must mediate these things and have two special objects in view with regard to disease, namely to do good or to do no harm. Dr. Andrew Lux joins us today to reflect on what physicians have learned about COVID pulmonology over 2020 and medical decision-making in the face of incomplete information. Dr. Andrew Lux is a professor of pulmonology and critical care medicine at the University of Washington, whose scholarly work focuses on education, exercise physiology, and high-altitude medicine and physiology. Within the School of Medicine, Dr. Lux is the course chair for one of the main blocks of the medical student curriculum, a 10-week course on cardiovascular, pulmonary, and renophysiology and pathophysiology, as well as the director of an elective course on wilderness medicine. He is the program director for UW's Critical Care Medicine Fellowship and serves on the Clinical Competency Committee for the Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine Fellowship. UW has recognized Dr. Lux for his educational role in both undergraduate and graduate medical education with various honors throughout his tenure. In addition to his educational contributions, he is actively participating in the care and treatment of COVID-19 patients in UW's ICU and has contributed scholarly work to our understanding of this disease. Outside the University of Washington, Dr. Lux has participated in several education roles with the American Thoracic Society, including serving eight years on the Society's Education Committee, chairing a postgraduate course related to cardiopulmonary physiology in the past 10 years, as well as co-chair for the Critical Care Corps of Society's Maintenance of Certification Program for five years. At both UW and through the American Thoracic Society, Dr. Lux is a recognized subject matter expert in training faculty how to give effective large group presentations how to lead small group teaching sessions, and how to develop effective teaching portfolios. In addition to this work, Dr. Lux has a clinical and scholarly program in the area of high-altitude medicine and physiology. In addition to working as part of several volunteer ranger patrols on Denali and serving a stint as physician at Himalayan Rescue Association in Farich, Nepal. He is a nationally recognized author and educator in wilderness medicine, most recently serving as lead author on high altitude medicine and physiology, the leading textbook in this field. Dr. Lux, thank you for joining me today for Wilma's podcast. That's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. 
It is truly a personal honor to be speaking to you. As mentioned when we first spoke, I'm familiar with your contributions to high-altitude medicine from planning my own excursions to the mountains. Earlier this year, I came across the theory that suggested that pulmonary effects of novel coronavirus was similar to high-altitude pulmonary edema, and your article warning against this hypothesis in the Annals of American Thoracic Society. Where did this theory come from, and what does it reflect on how information was passed in the early stages of the pandemic? Truthfully, I have no idea where this idea got going and how it actually took, uh, took root and started to spread. Now, I think what was going on at the beginning of the pandemic is we had this disease that was associated with severe morbidity and mortality, affecting large numbers of people, but a real lack of information about the underlying pathophysiology and how best to treat these patients and what their outcomes are going to be. And so I think people were really reaching in a lot of areas to try to figure out what was going on and make sense of the things that they were seeing in front of them. Probably what happened in the case of this theory about hate is they looked at hate and they said, well, patients with hate have low blood oxygen levels or hypoxemia. They have low carbon dioxide levels in their blood. And wow, that's really similar to what we're seeing with patients with COVID. They're hypoxemic and they also have hypocarbia. Maybe they share some underlying pathophysiology. So I think another link between the two diseases that got this idea going was not a lot of patients with high-altitude pulmonary edema end up requiring invasive mechanical ventilation. And one theory is that maybe despite the severe hypoxemia, their respiratory system compliance is adequate and they're able to maintain the work of breathing. And one of the observations that people had early on in the COVID-19 pandemic is that a lot of patients, despite having very low arterial PO2 and arterial oxygen saturation, the thought was that many of these had reasonably preserved respiratory system compliance as well. So perhaps another similarity with what people were seeing with hate. But I think in the end, these similarities that people saw are not unique to high altitude pulmonary edema and not unique to COVID-19. Lots of people who are hypoxemic are actually hypocarbic. And the reason is we all have a standard physiologic response to hypoxemia, that is the hypoxic ventilatory response. And when our arterial PO2 goes down, we raise our minute ventilation, and that leads to an increase in alveolar ventilation that lowers the PCO2. So a lot of what people were seeing is similar between these two things, and therefore may be indicative of a shared pathophysiology. Turned out to really not be that unique to these two disease processes. But despite that, this notion got going in certain circles, and then started being disseminated through social media and other channels. There was even a publication that showed up uh, in PubMed trying to make this argument. And people were extending the argument a little bit further, saying that, well, if these diseases share a similar pathophysiology, so we'd be treating them the same way and using some medications, using the treatment of high-altitude pulmonary edema like nifedipine or sildenafil or cetazolamide, and use them in patients with COVID-19. And these notions were just incorrect. Uh, which is why we wrote the article uh, in the Annals of the American Thoracic Society, as well as another piece that showed up in High Altitude Medicine and Biology, to try to combat some of this misinformation that was starting to circulate widely. Thank you for sharing that perspective. In a lot of ways, it speaks to, especially early on, this vacuum of information and the old adage in internal medicine, which is true, true, unrelated, um, in that in our search to try to understand and best treat, we were looking for any piece of corollary information that might be able to help, but maybe not aware to the fact that that could be harmful in how we think about things. Uh, along those lines, you shared with me a fascinating article in the New York Times 
um, from around June, July this year, which we're happy to link in the podcast on our website, detailing how treatment plans have evolved, especially around critical care medicine. For example, the use of hydroxychloroquine or the use of steroids in critically ill patients. The theme from this article describes a dichotomy between trying to adhere to evidence-based research, which develops over a long time horizon relative to the much shorter time horizon for treating a patient in that moment. For many of us in occupational medicine, we do work with operations and in quality committees with our various hospital and health systems. Can you speak to this dichotomy about clinical decision-making for the patient that's directly in front of you while also being aware of the evidence-based research at which we want to conduct our treatment? Yeah, I think this has been one of the biggest challenges in the pandemic. And I think it was particularly difficult early on in the pandemic. It's becoming a little less of an issue as we get further along because there's been more opportunity for good research studies to come out that guide our uh, practice and inform our understanding of the disease. And so early on, as people were facing these very high volumes of very sick patients and often seeing very high morbidity and mortality, there wasn't a lot of good information, as we mentioned earlier, about pathophysiology, the best approach to treatment, risk factors for bad outcomes. And I think that raises a really big question that we all deal with, which is how do you operate in the face of that uncertainty? I think some people are going to say, well, I know there's no information, but I think there's a good physiologic basis for this. Or I saw a little snippet of information or some little subgroup analysis in the study or this small observational study. And that's enough for me to justify giving this therapy to this patient, even though I know we don't have great evidence about the efficacy or safety of that intervention. And I think at the opposite end of the spectrum, we're going to be a whole cohort of people who are going to step back and say, whoa, 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 we don't really know whether this is effective or safe. And I don't think we should be exposing our patients to potential risk in the absence of that information. So we're going to sit tight and do the things that we know uh, work in the situation and try to systematically study this question. And that New York Times article really laid out this dichotomy and how it affected this one institution where you had this large research arm in this large healthcare group in New York trying to systematically study these questions. And at the same time, a whole cohort of physicians working within that system who did not want to deal with the constraints of the research studies and felt it was important to offer therapies to the patients that they felt in the back of their mind were beneficial. And I'm not sure there's a right answer. I think we all have our own personal thoughts about these issues and and have a sense of where we fall on this dichotomy. But it was, I think it's been a real challenge. I do think, as I mentioned a little while ago, that it's getting a little easier to deal with these problems as we move further and further in the pandemic, because now, nine, 10 months into this, we've had time for good studies to come out about underlying pathophysiology, good studies to come out that guide our treatment decisions. So there's a little more information that we can rely on. Earlier, you mentioned social media as being another source of clinical information that we were using early in the pandemic, correct or otherwise. It seems that all of us at some point were part of a personal text or WhatsApp thread with our colleagues. In what ways did you find that social media has helped and harmed medical decision-making as the pandemic was first unfolding? This has been another really interesting thing about this pandemic. Early on in the pandemic, I was thinking back to what things must have been like during the outbreak of HIV in the late 70s and early 80s when I was not a practicing physician, nor were many of uh, the listeners to this podcast. And here you had 
a similarly fearsome disease and a distinct lack of information and physicians struggling with how best to manage the problem and what was going on with these patients' underlying cause, et cetera. And I'm sure physicians were getting on the phone and then calling their colleagues in other cities, hey, what are you doing? What are you seeing? What are we supposed to make of this? Lots of discussions of meetings. So very similar to what we dealt with in this pandemic, but what they lacked was text via their cell phones and they lacked social media to allow rapid dissemination of information and various ideas about what's going on in the pandemic. An equally difficult disease with an equal lack of information at the beginning, but way different methods for disseminating information and learning what other people uh, are thinking about the problem. Preface the rest of my responses by saying that I'm a decidedly anti-social media person. So I don't have a Twitter feed. I'm not on Instagram. And so that biases my thinking a little bit. That being said, I do think there have been some benefits to the tools that we have at our disposal. So for example, usually we think about if you're in a large city and there's multiple hospital systems, most hospital systems are actually in competition with each other. They're not actually collaborators. And what happened in Seattle was at the very beginning of the pandemic, which really broke out for the first time in Seattle, the medical ICU directors at multiple institutions, all of whom would otherwise be considered competitors in the healthcare environment in Seattle, they set up a group text. And there was tons of communication back and forth trying to figure out all these early issues. Like, what are you doing about testing? What are you doing about isolation procedures? How are you handling this issue? What are you doing about this? What are you doing about that? And I think all of them would look back on that experience and say, at a very early stage, when there was no information about what to do, that that communication was very helpful. And certainly it's going to be the case that when important studies come out in the literature, like the recovery trial in England and the results about the use of dexamethasone in patients with COVID-19, social media provides not only an opportunity to rapidly disseminate that information, but also an opportunity for other people to get a sense of what thought leaders in the field think about these results. You don't have to wait for letters to the editors or talks at conferences or official webinars. You can actually see someone's tweets on the subject and get a sense of, oh, these thought leaders really think this is valuable, or they have the following concerns with these test results. Maybe I should implement this or hold back for a little while. So I think that's a good example of where social media can be really beneficial. The flip side is social media provides the opportunity to rapidly amplify and disseminate any idea, regardless of its validity. And I think there were lots of ideas that got going around very, very rapidly, despite the fact that they really weren't valid at all. And I think that story about the link between high-altitude pulmonary edema and COVID was one good example. I remember very early on in the pandemic, one of the experts on acute respiratory distress syndrome in the world, a gentleman named Gattinoni from Italy, published a short research letter in one of the main journals in my field, the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine, in which he tried to make the argument that ARDS due to COVID-19 is different. Despite having severe hypoxemia and very high shunt fractions, these patients have remarkably preserved compliance. And then in that piece and some other pieces that he wrote, I subsequently started to make the argument about these different phenotypes of the H and the L phenotype in COVID ARDS. Now that was a short research letter. It was actually very poorly sourced in terms of the supporting data. But Luciano Gattinoni, one of the leaders in the field, 
and some of his other publications with a gentleman named John Marini, another leading expert in the field of critical care medicine. And because that stuff's out there, it just started rifling around. And all of a sudden, everyone's talking about how there's this notion of COVID exceptionalism. COVID ARDS is different than other forms of ARDS. And then the information about hydroxychloroquine, there's now information about ivermectin, all these things that are circulating widely that are just not correct. But the problem is it gets out there. It takes on this face validity when in fact, there may not really be truth to what is being uh, said. And it was really interesting on the stuff that was put out there by Gattinoni and then others making the same argument. When people finally started doing systematic studies, looking at lung compliance and shunt fractions and dead space fraction in patients with COVID ARDS and comparing them to historical cohorts of patients with ARDS due to other causes, they first were able to demonstrate that the patients with COVID ARDS were not all of the same phenotype. There was a wide spectrum. There are some patients with high shunt fractions, some patients with low shunt fractions, wide variation in the dead space fractions, wide variations in compliance. And importantly, this same variability that you saw between patients with COVID ARDS was actually present in other forms of ARDS as well. So in other words, really blew up this idea of COVID exceptionalism. And so I think overall what happened was social media allowed rapid dissemination of these ideas before there was adequate testing of these ideas to establish the true validity. And then subsequently, when the data finally comes out, it takes a lot of effort to catch up and really change the way people think about uh, these issues. Thank you for that comprehensive explanation on how social media both harmed and potentially helped. In a lot of ways, it speaks to the advice you gave me when we talked as we were planning this podcast and early on here, where if you know the pathophysiology, if you understand the variability of individual clinical presentations, that that can be what you root your clinical decision-making as you're taking in these various sources of information from whatever avenue they're presenting. Well, we're now nearly a year into treating patients. What have we learned about the optimal treatments for COVID pneumonia on inpatient settings? Well, I think you can really break up this question into general care of respiratory failure and then disease-specific treatments. In terms of disease-specific treatments, I think the only thing that is really borne out with some relatively strong evidence in support of its use at this point is the use of dexamethasone uh, for patients with hypoxemic respiratory failure due to COVID-19. It's a nice data from the recovery trial uh, performed in the United Kingdom showing benefit to uh, the application uh, of this medicine, 10-day course of six milligrams per day. But interestingly, not a lot of other treatments have been borne out as having a real big benefit in patients with ARDS. Tocilizumab and the anti-IL-6 medication thought to be of of use early on, not so. Hydroxychloroquine has very famously gone down in flames as a a treatment for patients with uh, COVID-19. So from a medication standpoint, it's really dexamethasone is the new thing that we have in our armamentarium and not something that we've really used in the past in the management of patients with uh, ARDS. It's historically not been thought to be effective in patients with ARDS due to other causes, although there was admittedly in the last year or two a study called the DEXA-ARDS study, which was leading to some reevaluation of that. But traditionally, dexamethasone never played a large role. Certainly in the care of patients with COVID-19 and ARDS, it is playing a role. 
think what we've definitely learned in terms of the general management principles for hypoxemic respiratory failure, and in particular severe hypoxemic respiratory failure, is do what you always do in patients with hypoxemic respiratory failure. Right? Take the same approaches to your decisions about when to innovate your patients, your management of the ventilator once they've been intubated, your approach to liberation from the ventilator, your approach to whether or not to initiate extracorporeal membrane oxygenation if that therapy is available. And I think it's been really interesting to see the way this discussion has evolved. You know, when the reports first came out of China about this and how patients were doing, one of the notions that got going and was disseminated quite readily in social media, getting back to what we were talking about a little while ago, was this idea that people decompensated quickly and you had to intubate them very early in order to prevent those problems. And so there were some arguments going around that if the patient got up to four to six liters per minute of oxygen by nasal cannula, you needed to innovate right away, which is way different than our normal practice. One of the other ideas that going on social media is there were some physicians who were making the argument that you shouldn't be innovating anybody. You know, slow this down. We're actually destroying people's lungs by putting them on the ventilator, and we should delay that decision as much as possible. And there was a noteworthy video that was recorded and put up on YouTube that got gobs and gobs of views, wide dissemination in Twitter and other forums. And all of a sudden, you had people making those arguments. And that, I think, turned out to be a false notion as well. And I think as, as we've gone further and further along, we realize that we should be doing the things that we've known all along are indicated for these patients. So our indications for intubation and initiation of mechanical ventilation should really be no different than we've used in the past. And our approach to patients who are on invasive mechanical ventilation and have ARDS due to COVID-19 should be no different than the past. There's no good reason to abandon lung protective ventilation with low tidal volumes, which we know based on a large number of well-designed multi-center randomized controlled trials is associated with benefit in patients with ARDS. And I think we should continue the other practices that we do as well in terms of when to do tracheotomy, when to think about liberating the patient from the ventilator and approach to spontaneous awakening trials and spontaneous breathing trials. And then, like I said, the decision about whether or not to initiate uh, ECMO, if it's a tool that's available at someone's institu institution. The one thing I, I would say though that is different and that a lot of us have come to appreciate over time is that the time course of illness for these patients really seems to be different than in uh, other forms of ARDS and other forms of respiratory failure that we see. Many of us have just gotten used to the notion that this is when people get intubated, this is not something that's gonna turn around in a day or two, get them extubated, get them out of the ICU. We're, resetting our expectations and to see people on the ventilator for 10 days, two weeks, three weeks has not been unusual. And I think we're kind of all resetting uh, our expectations in that regard. Speaking to the long morbidity associated with novel coronavirus, what are some of the predictive factors or modeling that are being used to determine who might be at risk for transfer to an ICU level of care? It's a great question. And I don't think at this point we have a really good tool out there to help with triage from the emergency department or to make decisions when a patient's on acute care as to whether they need to go to the intensive care unit, besides the fact that, boy, this person's oxygen requirements are starting to increase, or their respiratory rate of work of breathing is increasing, and therefore, I'm getting a little more concerned uh, about these people. 
there are, you know, there's a tool that's been out there in the literature from before the time of the COVID-19 pandemic called the ROCKS index, which is a way to predict um, whether people who are on high flow nasal cannula are going to need uh, in, uh, intubation. And that's a tool that can be used, to try to gauge risk. But I'd say that I don't think everyone's kind of hanging hat on that one parameter and transferring patients to the intensive care unit. I know some of my lab medicine colleagues here at the University of Washington are actually starting to look at the role of quantitative PCR testing in order to get a sense of whether someone's at a high risk of problems. So in other words, a lot of our, our tests now largely say, yes, the person has COVID or no, they don't, but can you actually look at a quantitative PCR result and say, wow, the values, you know, the viral load is high, therefore they're at greater risk for problems and we should admit or put them in the ICU that data is all in its infancy. And none of the COVID-19 PCR tests that are out there are actually approved by the FDA for giving quantitative results at this point. So lots of barriers in terms of finalizing the research and then getting approval to do something like that. But that's an idea that's actually being considered. But I think you really have to just continue to monitor patients like you always do and use the same standard criteria for assessing, I think this patient needs to come into the hospital I think this patient needs to go to the ICU versus acute care or needs to transfer from acute care to the ICU. And a lot of that's going to be just assessment of standard clinical criteria. How's their mentation? What's their blood pressure? And importantly, what's their oxygen saturation and the trend for their oxygen uh, requirements? Is there still a role for redemsivir? Yeah, remdesivir is another one of these interesting stories about how the data has evolved over time. You know, at the beginning, we had no antiviral medication that we thought uh, was effective. There were studies looking at lopinavir, ritonavir combination that were subsequently found to be ineffective, and that quickly dropped out of practice. Remdesivir was shown in a trial that was released back in the spring to be effective, and then it subsequently was uh, adopted as part of guidelines for treatment. And this, I thought, was an interesting situation, too, because the initial results of the study didn't come out in a published paper in the medical literature. They were, you know, it was a press release through the NIH, which obviously has its limitations. You don't get to look at the data, the methods, and all the other problems. Subsequently, the data came out and it was recommended for use. But other trials that have come out since that time have cast some doubt on whether uh, remdesivir is truly a benefit in patients with COVID-19. That being said, at my institution and many other institutions, it remains part of the treatment guidelines. The downsides of the medication are likely low. There may be a benefit. And so I think in the face of high volumes, high morbidity and mortality, you can probably reasonably justify its use provided the drugs uh, available. But I think if you were a real strict evidence-based medicine person and saying, look, enough evidence has come out now calling into question, probably on reasonable ground uh, to hold it as well. I think the key thing to recognize about remdesivir is that when you start it in patients, it's not like they're all of a sudden going to get put on remdesivir and boom, the next day they're out of the ICU, one day in acute care and off they go home. This is not a miracle cure in any uh, sense. And actually, nor is dexamethasone. It's not like this miraculous recovery that you see. If there are benefits that we're seeing, it's kind of on the margins and things are a little bit harder to recognize in the moment shorter lengths of ICU stay, maybe some shorter duration of mechanical ventilation. And it's hard when you're looking at a single patient to gauge effects on mortality. 
I think there's a role for it. I don't feel strongly about its benefit. And I think in the end, we might find it's just like the use of oseltamivir uh, influenza. Maybe it works, probably doesn't, but likely not doing any harm. Along this discussion around various interventions and agents that are tried in um, hospitalized and critical care settings, anticoagulation in the inpatient setting has also been an evolving topic. Can you provide some insight on the current recommendations? Yeah, this has been another one of these questions that has definitely garnered attention and the thinking about it has evolved a lot over time. Early on in the pandemic, particularly when the numbers were exploding uh, in New York and then down in the, in the sunbelt of the U.S., there was this observation there, there were lots of thromboembolic events, mostly venous, but also arterial uh, thromboembolic events, and therefore concern that COVID-19 was associated with a hypercoagulable state, possibly related to some direct effects on the vascular endothelium uh, that are specific to the virus and its uh, underlying pathophysiology. That led to some changes in practices at many places. Some institutions were increasing the intensity of their prophylaxis against venous thromboembolism, for example. Some institutions were instituting protocols whereby they would start therapeutic anticoagulation if the D-dimer was markedly elevated, even before there was direct evidence of venous thromboembolism, such as a positive CP pulmonary angiogram or venous duplex. And there were even some people making arguments for using TPA, tissue plasminogen uh, activator. I think what's happened over time, though, is that as more evidence has come out and the leading professional societies have put their heads around this question is that the thinking has revolved around this notion that really we should be approaching the prevention of venous uh, thromboembolism and the treatment of known arterial and venous thromboembolism the same way we always have in the past. The same dosing regimens, same treatment regimens, and the same uh, duration. So then now looking at the outpatient side, several of my patients have had pulmonary emboli while hospitalized or have been um, discharged on anticoagulation medication for deep vein thrombosis. As patients transition from inpatient to outpatient settings, are these hypercoagulable states managed similarly to, say, pulmonary emboli of a non-COVID origin? I think at present, the guidelines would say to stick to the management that we would use for venous thromboembolism or arterial thromboembolism of non-COVID etiology as well, uh, in terms of the same agents and the duration of therapy, and then when to transition from time-limited therapy to long-term anticoagulation, for example, with recurrent uh, events. I don't believe that there's been adequate studies at this point looking at the relative benefit of warfarin versus a direct oral anticoagulant, uh, for example. So I would continue to approach these decisions in your clinic the same way you have prior to the pandemic. For many of us in occupational medicine, we are treating panels of essential workers and first responders with post-acute COVID syndrome, with pulmonary manifestations of shortness of breath at rest, dyspnea with exertion, at times requiring supplemental oxygen. I'd like to hear your thoughts about first responders, especially firefighters going back to their usual work after COVID, mild versus severe. Obviously, we don't have much data now, but would like to hear your concerns. Yeah, I think this is a, a really great question, and it's clearly something that's a problem and also something that we don't have a lot of information about. There's been lots of information in the lay press, and now finally some information is starting to come out in the medical literature about this notion of long haulers and, and persistent symptoms after uh, infection with COVID. It's clear that people have persistent problems. You see lots of stories, for example, people who before, before their illness highly fit 
highly active people doing things like working as a firefighter or other first responder, mountaineers or climbing guides, high level athletes who afterwards have these persistent symptoms that limit their ability to exert themselves. This is not simply someone who is overly anxious or suffering from some form of like the Munchausen syndrome. There's clearly something wrong with people who are otherwise highly motivated to get back to what they're doing. But I think what we struggle with right now is we haven't had adequate classification of exactly what this post-COVID syndrome looks like, how long these problems persist, what's the underlying pathophysiology, and how best to uh, treat those problems. And so in terms of how to approach someone like a first responder, I kind of think one of the things that is clearly worthwhile is you'd like to see the symptoms improved uh, in these individuals, no longer needing supplemental oxygen, exertional capacity coming back to normal, no evidence of underlying persistent organ involvement. So for example, they didn't have cardiac involvement like you know, myocarditis, for example. And I think one of the ways we can probably think about this question is to look at the stuff that's come out of the sports medicine literature, where they, this is a group of physicians that have clearly looked at this because there's a lot riding on this notion of when can an athlete return to competition after having COVID-19. And team physicians, both at the professional and the college level, have looked at these issues, as well as the leading professional societies built around sports medicine has started to consider these issues as well. It's not a literature I am super familiar with, but I know that they've been giving a lot of thought to these issues, and they're probably a group that would be able to provide really good insight on this question for people that are highly fit, highly active, much like many of the first responders are. Thank you for that insight. I'm, I'm smiling over here because there's this concept in occupational medicine of the industrial athlete, or it's this idea of as you're walking someone back to full duty and full recovery, you want to give them a taste of various aspects of their job that they're able to have capacity for to build the confidence and the endurance to proceed into further greater endurance-like tasks. Dr. Lux, thank you for joining us today and spending your time discussing really which, which has been a very comprehensive history of COVID pulmonology from the beginning of the pandemic to now. You touched on several important issues. Where are we getting our information? What is the role of social media in the speed at which we obtain that information? But what really speaks to me is how the fundamentals still remain fundamental to doctoring in that if you understand the pathophysiology of disease, if we use the critical eye that we're trained to have to vet the various sources of information that come, that is the way to make good clinical decisions in service to our patients. Thank you for your time today. It's my pleasure. Thanks very much for having me. Audience participants will find additional information on this topic next to the link for this podcast at www.woma.org, www.woema.org. If you've enjoyed this podcast, we'd like to invite you to explore more. You'll find our current library at woma.org and encourage you to subscribe at your favorite site for podcast listening. You will be notified as new podcasts become available. Subjects could include the latest clinical update, emerging treatments in medicine, or topics in public and environmental health. Stay tuned and don't miss out. On behalf of the WOMA Education Committee, the WOMA Board of Directors, and myself as moderator of this podcast, I want to sincerely thank our speaker, Dr. Andrew Lux, and also thank those of you who listened. The goal of these WOMA podcasts is to update you on a current topic of interest to occupational medicine. 
We know that this topic raises many more questions, and we hope that this information will generate further interaction beyond this call. Till next time, be well.